Welcome to the debate. I'm Andrew Tallman. Today, we're going to be talking about whether the death recommendation and death penalty trial should be unanimous. Also, whether we should have the age of 21 or 18 or something in between or outside of those parameters for purchasing firearms. And the universal basic income a plan put forward in Oregon. Would it be a good idea to pay people to be alive? Joining us today, we have Alice Hennigan, New York Times bestselling author and a regular contributor on the debate, and Christopher Bedford, executive editor at Common Sense Society. Alice, Chris, welcome to the debate. Hey, great to be with you guys. All right, let's start with the easy one, the one that nobody disagrees about at all. Should death penalty recommendations be unanimous? There's a long history of this with the Supreme Court. There's an execution slated to take place in Florida from a murder back in 89, where the recommendation was an eight to four. And without going into all the details of how we got here, even though the law currently requires unanimity in Florida, they're going to proceed with this particular execution on an eight to four death recommendation. Uh, Chris, what do you think about the requirement for unanimity here? I think that there's been too much essentially put between our society and what we're willing to tolerate and the criminals themselves. We we really insulated ourselves from exactly what so many of these people who are on death row have done. And this keep in mind, this is not a unanimity on innocence or guilt. It's just a recommendation on sentencing that the judge ended up coming over the top and saying, well, I recommend this despite it being broken uh, between the recommendations from the jurors. We like to separate ourselves from exactly why folks are on death row, because it's really easy to stay there from the safety of your home and say, you know, we shouldn't be killing people. I just pulled up a list of people in 2023. This this year have been executed. There's not a lot in the United States. One, uh, after sexually assaulting a 14-year-old girl, a few years later raped and murdered his girlfriend. Uh, that was Amber McLaughlin, who identified as a man when he was uh, raping his girlfriend, but no longer when he was killed. One shot his wife twice in the head. It was a police officer. One beat a 76-year-old to death, shot his 70-year-old wife, shot the son of her girlfriend, beat her mother with a, with a blunt instrument, and then tried to kill her. She was hiding from him because he tried to rape her. This goes on and on. And we like to separate ourselves just like we separate ourselves from so many aspects of society and this uh, give these platitudes. But there are people who deserve to be punished in this country. There are criminals who deserve to be punished and there are victims who deserve justice. And in all of these cases, at least the people who are victimized or the surviving families uh, did want that. I think they deserve it. So I'm sorry, I didn't quite grab in all of that the difference between unanimous recommendations or a simple majority recommendation like eight to four, 10 to two, something like that. It's whether or not the judge comes. So the question is not whether or not it's determined after someone's guilt or innocence has already been determined by the jury. Right, right. The question of whether or not they should have a life or death sentence. So if it's if it's a split jury over whether or not someone was guilty. I think that's a sig- significantly different question over whether or not that person ought to be executed. If there's serious doubt in the minds of jurors, then that person should have the longer ability for appeals. That is, uh, but when we're talking about sentencing, Florida decided the judge could come in there and say, well, I know that the jury hasn't come unanimously, but I recommend, based on the facts in this case, this person be executed. That meets the standards of Florida. And I don't see a problem with that. Ellis, do you think that uh, aside from the issue of simple conviction on guilt or innocence, do you think that the jury should have to be unanimous in recommending for the death penalty after the guilt or innocence phase? Andrew, uh, I'm with Jesus on this. So I am for anything that makes it harder for the state to kill people. Honestly, I think this is something that people left and right ought to be able to agree on. So many of my conservative friends are so suspicious about state action of any kind, whether, you know, protecting people from deadly diseases. They don't want the state involved in that. And uh, my goodness, this this is the 
This is the easiest case. I mean, of all the things the government should not be doing, it's killing people because uh, uh, we know how many mistakes get made. We know how uh, imperfect our justice system is. We know, frankly, how effective life in prison without parole is. Nobody ever escapes from death row. I mean, it's, it never happens, really. And it's a it's it's a rough penalty. It's a, it gets just the kind of justice that uh, that the Chris is eager for. There, it gives the the victims and their families uh, uh, all the satisfaction they need. And it it, it it killing people debases us as a as a society. And thankfully, uh, most states have backed away from it. The, even uh, a lot of very conservative states have decided it's not the business they want to be in. It, it doesn't really happen very much anymore. Thank goodness. And uh, whatever boundaries you can put, whatever difficulties you can make it, I'm for all of them. So I would say that a person like you, Ellis, is the reason that Florida is considering moving to an eight to four standard from the current unanimous standard because they don't want the executions thwarted by one person who is just completely philosophically opposed, willing to vote for guilt, willing to vote for life in prison, but completely unwilling under any circumstances to vote for death. Wouldn't you say that that puts the majority who can make these decisions in their proper role? Oh, there's always a taste for killing people. I mean, there's always an audience for that. Always has been. And so, so yes, uh, I'm sure the Florida legislature and Governor DeSantis uh, see some political advantage in this and uh, want to make it easier so they can get whatever the, the political plus is. I'm making a different kind of case. I mean, I understand it's, it's popular with some people. I don't think the polling is nearly as strong as it used to be. I think uh, far more people, including, uh, as I say, many of my uh, Christian conservative friends have uh, become far more leery of the death penalty than they were a, a couple of decades ago. But, um, I, you know, my argument is just that it's uh, it's too risky. It's morally de debasing of us. It certainly could not feel good about putting somebody to death on a on a five to four vote. Imagine how you'd feel if you just five to four killed some guy, uh, even even uh, Chris, a really terrible guy. Um, I, you know what? I, the, the tide is going most places the opposite way. Florida, again, is an outlier. But uh, boy, you're not going to get me to agree with it. So, Chris, do you think it debases people who participate in a society that decides that death is the punishment and then uses that penalty? No, I think the toleration of rape and murder in a society debases us. We've gotten to a point where there's so many moral what ifs and, and, and the attacks on moral truths and moral certainties that we can say, well, what's the difference between executing someone who's a murdering rapist or an attacker on children? Remember, this 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 whole question came up in Florida after the, the school shooter, what was his name, but Marjorie Stoneham Douglas High School, Nicholas Cruz, where the jury was undecided on death penalty that. That's why this came up. A society that is firm in its beliefs, that believes in itself, that believes in law and order, is a society that's willing to punish crime. And weakness in the face of absolutely brutal crime, most of them involving the death row or sexual in nature as well as murderous, uh, is one I think that's lost its way. Allison, your point, I hear a couple of things mixed together, and you may believe all of them. Uh, one, it sounds like you believe that mistakes can be made. Uh, the state makes mm -hmm. mistakes, and that's certainly so, a concern. Yeah, everybody agrees everybody, that. Every, no, everybody no, recognizes that. that possibility. Sure. I'm, I'm more yeah. curious about this kind of the debasing argument. Because um, uh -huh. when I think about executing somebody who's guilty of a capital offense, I think of that as being honoring to that person, holding them accountable to the only thing they have that can adequately pay for taking a life, which is 
taking their life. You just can't see it that way or? Uh, well, I, I just think it's plain wrong. I, I mean, it, and it misunderstands the severity of, of prison. I've I visited several maximum security Florida prisons uh, in my journalism career. And, and let me tell you, there ain't nothing cushy about any of them. And uh, particularly when you're on death row in a, in a Florida state penitentiary, life without parole, Nobody, Chris, is suggesting that we ought to go light on, on, on these horrible crimes. I mean, some people need to be in prison. I, some people do horrible things and cannot be allowed to be in society. Plus, uh, I mean, you make a good point. The victims and their families deserve justice. Uh, society needs to be protected. Messages need to be sent to, to other people. There are all kind of reasons for uh, horrible crimes to be punished with horrible penalties. But I'm stopping this, this side of killing people and for all the reasons I said. So do, do you perceive uh, life in prison as being a worse punishment than executing them? No, okay. no I'm not. I'm not saying that. I'm saying it's a really bad punishment it, it, to, to, to suggest that there's somehow something cushy or light or we're not we're not bringing down. Uh, we're not taking these horrible crimes seriously. I just think is plain wrong. No, I think I think killing is is the worst. I, it's, okay. you know, it's the ultimate. It is indeed the ultimate. I, I only ask because I, I thought I heard a little bit of that sense, like, you know, uh, really bad mistreatment of somebody kept alive, you know, under some circumstances might uh, be worse. And I thought I heard you kind I of hinting at that. I mean, that's, so. like, that's like asking me, do I want to die in a fire or a flood? I mean, they're both they're both really bad. I heard you're more of a fire guy personally, you know, based on the things I've read. <laughs> that, so. could be. that could be. Yeah, I, I am. I am still kind of curious. I want, I'd love to try one more time at this. The, the underlying question here, which is. When you've got somebody who's opposed, philosophically opposed um, to capital punishment, and they manage to get through the vetting process and they vote for guilt, but then they vote like I think this was what happened in the Parkland case. You know, they just plain won't vote for capital punishment, even if they said they would. Okay, Uh, should that person be able to thwart the process by being the one on 11 one or the two on a 10 to two? And I can't reconcile that because. It seems like you ought to allow for that kind of a, you know, a little bit of room, even for the people who are opposed to the thing itself to be on the jury and not have to worry so much about their total opposition. Chris, do you think that that's, you know, is there room for that or should we just I don't know, is, I, I'm still based, uh, stuck on the basic question of whether we should have to have unanimity or not in this. No, and that's why I don't think we should have unanimity. We shouldn't put all of the onus on the jury itself. That's why the judge ends up having to sign that order in the end. Well, the governor has to sign that order in the end. The judge has to recommend it. Somebody who spends his life or her life weighing these cases, seeing face-to-face the victims and survivors looking in the eyes of these murderers and rapists in our society, and then saying, I know that there are some people who seem just philosophically opposed to what the state recommends and what the judge thinks that this crime deserves, but they're going to sign it. And that's, of course, not the end of it. There's a long, as we talked about, appeals process that follows where different nonprofit groups are exclusively set up for trying to defend these folks. Uh, there are some great people who come out of the woodwork. Uh, some of these convicted murderers and rapists who have been killed in 2023 may have come to Jesus in the end and, and did die with the, uh, with priests by their side giving last rites. And they requested that. I'm glad to see that. But uh, the philosophical opposition of a citizen in Florida on a jury after the person's been found guilty of heinous crimes shouldn't always override the ability of the state to put someone it seems uh worthy of that to death. And I assume based on your earlier uh, position, Alice, that your view is anything that stops it is good. <laughs> I don't I, yeah, I, I don't, but, I, don't but, I don't I don't I don't I don't worry too much I, about the I details. Do. 
that is that is true. I'm going to pose it in all cases, but 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 let me address the the question that that you raise, Andrew, because I, I think it's a serious question. Um, of course, people ought to come to the jury with a variety of different moral views about this, and the jury's supposed to represent society. We have tremendous disagreement on this on this issue. Why on earth would you only have killer of fans on the jury? I mean, why shouldn't people who have a strong moral view in the opposite direction be represented? That, that, that's why we have we wouldn't put it to the jury if we didn't want people to bring their uh, their, their common sense moral views to this to this question. Of, of course, you have to have a diversity of people on a jury. And, and that's actually uh, weirdly one of the reasons why you might favor not requiring a unanimous jury recommendation, because it allows you more open room for people who are willing to vote for guilt, not willing to vote to execute, to participate in that process. Right. Because there wouldn't be the peer pressure for them to join the, uh, you know, the entire group or you just wouldn't be worried about them trying to lie their way through because they're allowed to be there. That is that that is true. We do not want jurors composed entirely of the most bloodthirsty among us. That, right, that, that obviously right. undermines the point of the jury system. You know, it, it kind of raises a, a question that's related that you don't hear talked about a whole lot. This concept of jury nullification, right, where a single juror or perhaps a group of jurors decide for themselves that the facts justify a conviction. They would definitely be punishable under the law, but they don't believe the law itself is just not specifically about execution or capital uh, offenses or anything else. But they take a look at any particular law being discussed in this case and they say, you know what, we just don't think that people ought to be punished for this. And at the jury level, say we're out. We're not willing to go along. Now, typically judges tell juries that they're not allowed to vote that way. They're not allowed to decide that way. But kind of what Ellis is hinting at, the longstanding ancient tradition was always that you had to get a conviction by a jury because the jury might well say the state's just wrong in prosecuting this case. What's your kind of position on jury nullification, Chris? I would like that to go to our politically elected leaders to decide on that. I understand it as an act of protest. Much more uh, problematic for me than jury nullification in recent years has been uh, prosecutor nullification. The the decision by city prosecutors, including Washington, D.C., a city I was just forced to flee basically after 15 years of living there to no longer prosecute violent crimes, to decide who who's too young. Uh, they raised this, the, the age in D.C. Actually, this is by the city council to 21 years of age before you could possibly get a life sentence. Um, that sort of nullification seems a lot more common. Uh, jury nullification is something I have to see on a case-by-case basis, but there is, of course, as you mentioned, a good history of it. Ellis, uh, the individual or even the group that says, we see the facts, we see the charge, we know what the state has said, but we don't think people should be put in jail for this crime. Uh, that's true. I mean, there's a, there is a, a history of that. The system, as you know, Andrew, is designed to weed that out. I mean, the, there's voir dire on uh, the council on both sides and uh, sure. preemptory and other sorts of challenges that allow the attorneys to bounce people they don't like. It's it, it's not a it's not a, a perfect system. But, yeah, I, you know, all this stuff. And, 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 and Chris, I'd say the same thing about prosecutors. I mean, they're elected in, in, in Washington, D.C. And, and in most places by citizenry who's whose uh, attitudes and moral values they're supposed to represent. And so if uh, if they have a different view of what crime should be prosecuted th- th- than, than your view, I, that's, I would think that would be to be expected. Yeah, we're definitely seeing these cases pop up where, you know, the state attorney says, look, I'm if you if you make abortion illegal, for example, sure. well, I'm not going to sure. prosecute marijuana, that case. Marijuana has come up a right. lot of those. Prosecutors just say, listen, I'm, I'm just not going to prosecute those pot cases. 
Should that be the uh, the power of the, say, the prosecutor, state attorney to be another sort of last check against incarcerating people on a law they consider to be unjust? Sure. Vote them out if you don't like them, of course. Chris? Uh, no, absolutely not. The, uh, <laughs> the tyranny, the, the majority should not be able to terrorize the tyranny because because in Washington, D.C., which votes more unanimously for one party than any other place in the United States, well over 90 percent Democrat is not going to change their vote. Most of them are not very informed voters, but in the are not caring that much about local issues. I mean, by that, caring much more about national issues in the neighborhoods adjacent to where I lived and and around. There's an actual real cost to that. There are people who are being murdered. Crime is up 23 percent just from last year where crime was up from the year before, where crime was up from the year before. At the same time, we're prosecuting 68 percent less cases than they were five years ago. 68%. That's absolutely right. And that's for felonies, not for misdemeanors. We, as a, I mean, usually as a society, have all decided, hey, we're going to get together and carjacking someone with a weapon uh, it should be something that should be prosecuted, but it's not always prosecuted. My local priest reported a drug dealer in the homeless shelter giving drugs to the mentally ill, some of the most vulnerable people in our society, and the police didn't arrest them. They declined to prosecute because they didn't want to put someone away for drugs. These people are preying on the vulnerable. And it's extremely fashionable in Washington to vote, whether for the machine politician or to vote for someone who makes you feel good. And there's not a lot of alternatives either. But most of the voters, when confronted with the reality of this, what it's actually bringing, might change their mind. It's just it's a one party state. And that shouldn't be a lot that should not allow the most vulnerable in our society to be penalized. So I think I have a couple of points of agreement. I'm hoping that we all would agree to. We'll find out in a second. Um, One is. Though we talk quite a bit about our principles and about how we think the system ought to be structured, uh, I think, I hope we would all agree that people in their daily arguments tend to pick the position that favors their view, right? If they don't want people locked up for X crime, then they will favor any argument (laughs) that supports that. And if they do want people locked up for X crime, they'll favor any argument that supports that. Present company, I'm not saying present companies in this group. We tend to say we believe in jury nullification on uh, laws that we dislike and not on laws that we agree with. Is that fair? Would you guys say? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Very tribal country. We Ab- today, most no definitely. <laughs> and then just back real quickly before we take a break on the issue of capital punishment. Um, it's a very sobering thing. Whether we agree it's ever possible or disagree that it's, it should never be done, uh, we ought to take it very seriously. And some people are far too flippant about it, frankly. And I think we should recognize that the state does make mistakes, and that should give us a lot of pause. So the higher the bar for making sure that we don't make mistakes, the better, right? Well put. Yeah. I mean, I'm the only one of my brothers who's never spent time in prison, and I actually don't think that they deserved it. So I take this stuff very seriously. But I, at the same time, lived, uh, lived, uh, was run out of the house that I bought for my family by the incredible surge in crime, where it was no longer safe for my stepson or my fiance to be there. So that this stuff is nuanced, for sure. The state can make mistakes. Crime has impact. Prison is tough. But, uh, but what we've seen in our cities in the last couple of years has been really tragic. We're going to leave it there for the moment. Obviously, a big conversation topic. The next thing we're going to talk about is firearm purchase age, something which is very much in flux in the U.S. right now when we return on the debate. Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. 
Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Welcome back to the debate. Joining me today, I have Chris Bedford and Ellis Hennigan, and we're talking about the age required to purchase a firearm. Federal law says that from a certified gun owner or a gun sale shop, you know, you have to be 21 to buy a handgun, 18 to buy a long barrel rifle or a shotgun. State laws here differ. And when you buy from private individuals, the same laws don't quite apply at the federal level. But loads of states have put in a rule that it has to be 21 and 18 at all. We've also got some states that have put in the rule that you have to be 21. In fact, Post Parkland, Florida, put in the law that it had to be 21 for any gun long barrel, handgun, anything like that. And now there's a move, again, in Florida to reverse that and go back to 18. Elsewhere, you have the uh, effort to put the age to purchase a gun up in Colorado to 21. Let's start with you, Ellis. First of all, what, what do you think is the age? Should the age be 18? Should the age be 21? Does it depend on the gun type? Give me your kind of what's your scheme, well, what's your scheme here? I mean, listen, this was such a large topic. Yes, there are some differences in gun types. But we, we've had a bad rash in this country of these mass shootings, a huge percentage of which have involved uh, young alienated males. Just right in that zone, you're talking about that 18 to 21 age group. So it's understandable, uh, led by Florida, which is a thing I seldom say, but led by Florida to, 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 you know, let's, let's just make one small step to try and protect people from these especially horrific gun violence crimes. Um, I don't, I don't have any faith that, that any small step like that is going to, going to change the, uh, the horrific carnage that uh, firearms create in our society. And, and by the way, I'm not, I'm not a, an adamantly anti-gun guy. I mean, I'm from Louisiana, a state of, of lots of hunting and and uh, damn near universal gun ownership. Uh, but but I do think that, that that on the margins, at least, there's things we can do to to make all our citizens safer. And that strikes me as one that's reasonable. What's your first reaction to this, Chris? Uh, 21 appropriate? Should it be different ages? Should it be everybody 18? What do you think? I mean, we give we give soldiers guns at 18, and we expect. I mean, you, you'll. A friend of mine's younger brother is actually being threatened with five years in prison or $50,000 fine for having not signed up for this elective service simply out of laziness. Um, so we certainly are okay in the United States with giving 18-year-olds guns. Most police stations nowadays, police forces require you to have a college degree, so that might be 20 years old. Uh, now, before we hand you a gun and ask you of that um, hunting, which you, I, I assume, unless you're Ted Nugent, you're not doing with a handgun. Uh, something that we could certainly trust people younger than 18 with. Um, I think that, you know what, I guess I'll come back to my personal experiences. Just yesterday, I was in Capitol Hill trying to help a friend repair his garage. And we caught a guy uh, red-handed trying to steal a motorcycle out the back because the top, bottom third of the garage couldn't close at that moment. So I went in there and he had a friend waiting in the car. We were confronted. Thank goodness he wasn't a violent criminal. He seemed more freaked out that he'd been busted. But just the night before, in that same neighborhood a few blocks away, two people, including a young immigrant Uber driver, had been shot to death, completely innocent, and a drive-by violent crime in the neighborhood is up dramatically. And the inability for me to have been able to defend myself if I wanted to uh, would have been really troubling, especially in a city where the police are now afraid to prosecute, uh, to arrest people. They're not allowed to chase people because they know that they're not going to be prosecuted. And if anything happens, the police will be held up and held accountable for that. 
I, I think that's a, a serious problem. And so when I went into DC to get my concealed carry for something that I'm from Massachusetts, I didn't think I would ever going to, was ever going to get, I didn't see a line of gangbangers or criminals or even alienated young men out front. It was such a broad cut of society from elderly people, white and black uh, women, people who looked like they might've been uh, young married women or young single women, uh, comic book nerds, a couple guys who are- Hey, whoa, hunters. whoa, whoa. <laughs> <laughs> it was such a range of society of these people who were coming in to get those guns. And the reason why they were is because they felt that they weren't protected anymore. They were unsafe. Um, and they were going through the legal process. It's very, very rare that you're going to find someone aside from suicides or, or spousal disagreements or spousal murders where, who commits these crimes with a, an actually legal gun. So we, well, we do have huge amounts of problems trying to figure out exactly what's going on with the school shootings, trying to figure out the effect on mental health of social media, trying to figure out where we're going wrong with psychi a psychiatry and, and, and even the, the medicines we're treating, the red flags, et cetera. Those are something that I think we really need to tackle, school safety measures. But it's, I'm unconvinced of the argument that an 18-year-old with a handgun uh, is going to make a bigger difference. You know, it's interesting because for me, when I think about this situation, I think about uh, the 19-year-old girl, you know, who might have moved out of her parents' house and she's living on her own and she's working or she's a student. OK, a lot of college campuses ban guns. Also, that's an interesting separate argument. It always seems to me like that's a person that I want to equip to protect herself. And so the notion of making her as an adult citizen who can vote have to wait until she gets to be 21 to buy any kind of a gun. And here it would not even be a handgun, right? It would be a shotgun, for example, to protect herself in her home. I find that odious. Uh, Ellis? Well, Andrew, I'm not going to be able to convince you to be skeptical of shotgun packing 19 year old girls. I, I could argue through every statistic at you. And I'm not going to convince you of that. No, I mean, I would, I would rather give her a 380 personal. I'd rather. I, let, but I, but I that's understand. 21 it's, federal. So it's no, it's it's religion for people on the other side of this. There's, there's no argument I can make. But but let me let me see if I can if I can approach something that I'm hoping maybe I can get you to agree on, because because it seems to me the first step here ought to be some Common sense, safe firearm safety measures. For instance, uh, 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 Chris, you, you made an eloquent comparison a moment ago about people in the military who indeed are able to carry weapons and suggesting it's not fair to deny the 19 year old alienated civilian the chance because his buddy who's in the army gets to gets to carry one. But, but, but you know, there's a big difference there, as you know, is that people in the army are trained and it's a controlled situation and we don't just um, throw the weapon at them and let them do with it what they want. It seems to me we ought to all be able to agree that there ought to be some basic competency required before you're allowed to own a weapon of any sort. You ought to, you ought to the same way you, you can't drive unless you prove some ability to do it. I, I'd love to get you guys to agree on that, that we ought to have a have a gun owner's license where you, you show that you actually know how to safely operate that weapon. I'll give you another one, that, that, that you ought to be required to keep the gun in a safe place, that uh, if you have kids in the house, it, it ought to be locked up. Or, or maybe we should use some smart gun technology that that makes sure if your gun is stolen, which which we know happens millions of times a year, 
that the thieves can't use it, that it, that it doesn't match your fingerprint and the gun doesn't work. Can I get you guys to agree on some of that sort of stuff? Realizing I'm never going to convince you to, 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 to pull even the most dangerous weapons out of civilian hands. So I, I'm pretty sure that what Ellis just proposed was a universal gun training education course from the government so that all citizens at, say, the age of, what, 17, Ellis, would go through a training course to learn gun no, safety? People, I'm saying before you were allowed <laughs> I to know, have a gun, I know. I know. I'm just. I'm taking it that next that level. You can operate the gun. No, but but Chris, what we, do you think? The the two things he's proposed. Uh, you know, common sort of suggestions. One would be that in order to own a gun, you'd have to show some kind of basic competency, and that there ought to be requirements, which there are already uh, in a lot of states, but that there ought to be a requirement about safe storage of that gun. Your thoughts? Yeah, I think that's generally true. If you have a handgun and you're carrying it on your person, you don't know how to use it. You're significantly more likely. To hurt yourself or get yourself uh, escalated situation in a way that gets yourself killed if you don't know how to use it. You don't have any business carrying it. There are some states that don't require it. But one thing I'd be worried about is creating a barrier to entry, especially for those people. Let's say the single working mother or, or the single working father who's really spending all their money towards their family and kid working a lot of times. Courses I had to take in Washington, D.C. were about six hours, cost hundreds of dollars. I had to go back and forth to the police station multiple times, fingerprinted. Uh, et cetera. Um, these things, some, some of those, some aspects of that should be required, but for someone who can't afford it, I think there ought to be, uh, maybe if we're going to talk about a program like that, assistance from the taxpayer to make sure that that's not a barrier for the people who, generally speaking, are the most vulnerable. Uh, I've got a white collar job and I had the expendable income. So I was able to take off a little bit in the evenings and I was able to pay for that myself. But a lot of the folks uh, who I saw in line with me, I, I suspect were not in similar circumstances. Yeah, Ellis, for my part, I would say that uh, I have I have questions about the safe storage because every thing that you put in favor of safe storage is then an impediment in an urgent situation where you need access to the gun. So I'm not really persuaded about the safe storage requirements. I fully understand about the dangers of the guns getting into the kids' hands. But the whole reason you have a weapon in the home is for not the, you know, hey, an hour from now, I know a burglar is going to come, right? It's for right now it's happening and every moment wasted is a problem. So I, I have questions about that. As far as the training, I'm actually with you. Uh, I don't mind Good. training requirements. Uh, I Good. I think the problem a lot of times is they're kind of weak in application and they don't really produce competent knowledge. Uh, here, here's where I'll very much agree with you. I think most people who own a gun, uh, well, uh, a lot of people who own a gun, even people who might have a, a concealed carry permit. So they've gone through the legal training and the, you know, the uh, competency training. They're just wrong about the law on these things. You know, uh, you know, I get I live in Florida, but I've seen these signs elsewhere in the in the world where people say they put a, a sign up on their uh, their tree on their lawn that says, you know, uh, trespassers will be shot. Survivors will be shot again. Well, no, it's murder to shoot a trespasser. But people in their minds think that's OK because they don't really understand the law. And so I'm at least as concerned about people's incompetence when it comes to the law around gun use as I am with their inability to shoot straight or keep it safely from harming people. Yeah, it's a good it's a good point. I mean, you know how many accidental deaths, how many uh, teenage son comes home and dad thinks it's a yeah. burglar. I mean, you've, you've seen all those all those cases and they're they're not rare. Uh, believe me, but look, I'm I'm cheered by this. If, if you guys are in favor of of and, and, and let, let's make them tougher. If you think they're too wimpy, let's let's have a longer course or a tough. Well, that's kind of why or, I brought up the training, you know. 
Yeah, no, no, I, I love all of that. I mean, you know, we, we require it with driving, you know, and people who need to drive figure out, even low-income people figure out how to get a driver's license. Um, this is something that, that's at least as deadly. These are This is a, a machine that's designed to kill people. A car only kills people accidentally. This is something designed to kill people. Before we put it in the hands, live firearms in the, in the, in the hands of citizens, yeah, let's figure out that they know how to operate them safely and let them let them prove it. I, I have no problem with that at all. I'm so happy that you guys think that. And and yet, and I do sympathize with some of the, the concerns Chris is raising about there's a kind of elitism in the notion that, uh, you know, we can afford the training courses or we have the time to devote to it. Uh, again, I sometimes think about the the, the pressing circumstance, okay, domestic violence, for example, or uh, somebody who's got not even domestic violence, but they've just they've run up against trouble in their neighborhood and they feel unsafe uh, for whatever reason. I'm just always cautious about putting time barriers, training barriers, permitting barriers between them and being able to be safe tomorrow because the police are not there to prevent that crime. They're not there to protect them tomorrow. Uh, and so, you know, the possibility of getting a concealed carry permit six months from now isn't much recourse when your coworker threatens you. You know, that's the thing I'm thinking about. Uh, final words on this subject, Chris. I, I, I think you're right there. Uh, and especially in the cities where lawlessness has started to spread over the last three years in particular, and a lot of people feel threatened sense of fear. And I was able to get a shotgun in a couple of short weeks in DC, but I certainly wasn't able to get a handgun for a number of months. So that's a serious problem. But but to Ellis's point, I think that legal gun owners in America would agree with you that there's and have very little tolerance for those people who don't have training. Those people who handle guns incorrectly or unsafely during a hunting trip and someone uh points the gun in the wrong way, everyone's going to jump on them very quickly and tell them and and maybe never go hunting with them again. Uh so I'm with you on on, on increasing uh, training and making sure that people are safe. But I, the barriers, and especially those places like DC that use those barriers to try and slow down the process, to try and inconvenience the citizen, uh, is always going to be a threat. Yeah, I said final thought, but I actually have something else I want to get to. But go ahead, Alice. I want you to comment. Yeah, on that. welcome. Yeah. I welcome. Can I correct what, what I think is maybe one misconception that's floating around in this conversation? That, uh, that, that, that somehow uh, uh, northern cities are the uh, uh, States are the are the worst places here. As, as I'm sure both of you all know, by far the highest homicide rates and gun violence rates are in places like my native Louisiana. I, I think me, Louisiana, Mississippi, Alabama, Florida, like New York is like is like 27th on the list of of, uh, of of gun violence and homicide rates. So so I, I, maybe I'm being an oversensitive New Yorker here, but quit dissing my town. You guys down in the south are the ones with a much bigger problem. Go solve that. It's it's funny. It's usually it's usually the cities in the red states that seem to be some of the gnarliest for sure. <laughs> yeah, there's definitely truth to that. One one of the things I wanted to ask you guys about, just because you know, you get me thinking about you know, Ellis, things that we could find agreement on. Okay, and uh, Ryan, you know, Ryan. This may surprise you, and this this always puts me at odds with some of my fellow Second Amendment uh, advocates. Is I like the red flag laws. I think the red flag laws make sense. I, I think the idea that a person says or does something that shows that they are mentally unstable or, you know, that they should not be trusted with a gun right now at the very least. I don't have a problem taking away that gun from them right now. I understand the concerns about over enforcement, but to me, that's the whole point. You know, we find somebody who maybe when they bought the gun 10 years ago, they were fine. And now something has changed. And we know mental health and depression, uh, a variety of factors can make somebody uh, sort of unsafe to themselves, uh, themselves or others. 
I don't mind uh, the observation that this person should no longer be having that gun. I assume you agree with the red flag laws in general, right, Ellis? I will. I will chalk that up as a victory, Andrew, and, and welcome you aboard, sir. <laughs> it makes me very unpopular in my group, but it's that's that is my view. And they've they've thwarted thousands of crimes here in Florida uh, since they were implemented post Parkland. Chris, your thoughts about the red flag idea or the um, extreme risk protection orders, as they're sometimes called? I, I mean, in extreme circumstances, I absolutely back that. It, it, there's very little. There's very little more frustrating than trying to get police or the state to act when you know that someone you love is a threat to themselves or to others. It's very, very difficult. Of course, I'm concerned about the concept of an ex-girlfriend or ex-boyfriend or someone being able to disarm you when they're angry or, or the, the kind of trolling that we've seen arise and swatting, of course, and other different things that people would able to be able to do to disarm you. But in, but in general, we need to be very careful about folks. And it's, it's, extre- it's been extremely frustrating. I'm sure most of us have had some kind of experience, whether with friends or family who are drug addicted or dealing with something else, trying to get them help. And that is always, that has always been a struggle. Yeah. And, you know, I think it's something we haven't talked much about. We've kind of mentioned it in passing, but I think we are all very painfully aware of the role that handguns particularly play in suicide in this country. And to get back to the original, yeah, to get back to the original question of um, the age issue, we certainly know that the younger is much more vulnerable to the kinds of motivations and psychological issues that would lead somebody to take their own lives. And, you know, it, we do so much to protect a life that uh, protecting people from taking their own lives is uh, it's an important motivational factor. Uh, you know, it's always balanced against other things. But uh, if we could find a way to solve that nut, man, I, you know, I think we would all uh, support that. Uh, any last thoughts before we switch topics, uh, Chris or Ellis? I just want to give you a chance to weigh in. I don't always ask the question that way, but I do want to give you a chance. That is a very good point. Almost as many people uh, you know, die from suicide by gunshot as by uh, homicide by, by, by gunshot in, yeah. our, uh, in our society. And uh, we, we've, we can trot out the statistics, but when those guns get harder to get, fewer people kill themselves because it's, it ain't as easy to do uh, in some of the other ways. Not impossible, but it's not quite as easy. <laughs> All right, we'll leave it there for the moment. When we come back on the debate, guaranteed basic income, something that maybe a lot of people hadn't heard much about prior to Andrew Yang's uh, failed presidential run, but now is something that they're looking at under a bill in Oregon. We'll talk about it next on the debate. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. That's not just the sound of that first sip of Morning Joe. It's the sound of someone shopping for a car on Carvana from the comfort of home. That's a good blend. It's time to take it easy, like answering some easy questions to get pre-qualified for a car in minutes. Talk about starting the morning right. Just like customizing your terms so your car fits your budget. Mm, mm, mm. Visit Carvana.com or download the app to experience car shopping the way it should be. Convenient. Comfortable. Ah. 
Welcome back to the debate. Uh, I'm Andrew Tallman, and today we're talking about whether there should be a guaranteed basic income, something that became a keynote point for Andrew Yang when he was running for president. He did not win the nomination. But now Oregon, in a bill that apparently doesn't have a lot of chance of going anywhere, but is still worth talking about, at least in my opinion, because it has been tried in other places, sometimes to great success, is the idea of a $1,000 a month payment to low or no income Oregonians for two years as a way to find out what effect that would have as a kind of experiment to see what $25 million uh, on a monthly basis spent over the course of two years might do to make a difference in people's lives. Uh, Let's start with you, uh, Chris. Uh, Your thought about the prospect of spending $25 million in taxpayer funds in this sort of social economics experiment to see what $1,000 a month might do. I'm I'm confused as to why they're running it. That's that's sort of the experiment that we ran during COVID, and it doesn't seem to have had a very good impact on the workforce. Certainly hasn't lowered the poverty rate. The um, the fraud that seems to have been endemic and is now being investigated. Uh, but we are facing a real issue in this country, and it's something that we have to think outside the box. You can't simply apply LBJ, give them money economics, and you can't simply apply apply Art Laffer, give them nothing economics. You have to figure this out. You know, when you we're we've had a lot of different changes in our society over over the centuries, but industrialization, a change from agriculture economy, things that generally were generational. Um, things where maybe sons or, or left or, or daughters left the farm, but it didn't change immediately. Uh, and different industries. I think libertarians like to cite that the horseshoe maker was driven out of business by the automobile, but it created new jobs. The threat that we're facing in this country over the next 20 or so years is an end to low-skill labor, essentially. The people who move boxes, the people who uh, make deliveries, which is about drivers, about the biggest employer in the United States. I'm not saying that those are all low-skill, but things that can be done potentially by machines. Even accountants are being replaced by programs. Uh, Writers over at BuzzFeed being replaced. Um, And when you look at cities where there's been extreme breakdowns, where you've looked at cities where law and orders break down. I first started thinking about this when Ferguson, Missouri went to hell. Um, That place had about a 50% unemployment rate. It it makes sense for why, or a little less than that, for why there was a massive breakdown in order. And when we start to get rid of all these low-skilled jobs, almost every job you see at the airport, the post office, around the world, around the country, uh, we're going to have a serious problem with unemployment. We're going to have to figure out how to keep people busy. We're going to have to figure out how to keep people paid. But there is, you can look at the effects of what happens when you just hand out money. Uh, I live not too far drive from Cambridge, Maryland, in the Eastern Shore. That's where Harriet Tubman's from. It was a town that had a big canning factory. Uh, but when they built the bridge across the bay, there was no longer a need to can all the vegetables grown over there. The factory went under. People there are still surviving. They've been paid uh, by welfare and paid by other state programs. But you drive through parts of the town and you can tell it's three generations of family that have had no jobs. Uh, and it hasn't, it, it, the community is still alive, but the community fabric is completely broken down. And there's a lot of despair. There's a lot of poverty. There's a lot of uh, violence and sadness in those areas. So handing out, and you see the same thing in a lot of the uh, the, the, coal, the coal mining towns that Margaret Thatcher shut down. I mean, the, the right wing loves to cheer her for that. But look at those communities. They were torn apart. They were destroyed. And now they're surviving just based on these kind of universal basic incomes, their version of it. Uh we can't. You can't just change industries and change America and expect people to simply fend for themselves. We're past the grapes of wrath, America. But we, this handing out money, doesn't seem to work. It doesn't increase labor participation. It doesn't make people happier. It doesn't help people in a spiritual matter. Um, 
but it's something that left and right really do need to talk about. Yeah, no, I, I, it's very complicated. A lot of stuff to get into there. Ellis, your thoughts about the thousand uh, dollar a month proposal in Oregon? Well, I, I guess the, the first thing I would say is I'm for what works, right? There have been smaller scale experiments of, of doing that, 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 that suggest that, that the old way, which was to give people who are deeply down on their luck, people who are, who are desperately poor, money with a lot of strings attached, you know, that you could only spend it on this kind of thing, or you could only use the voucher on Section 8, or the coupon had to be spent on this thing, but not that other thing. I think that what these small experiments are suggesting, it's not its not broad yet, it's, I wouldn't say, say it's proof, but it's worth, it's worth reflecting on is that sometimes it really works better if you let individuals make those decisions for themselves. So if we're going to provide some basic floor so that people in our society don't starve in front of our eyes and don't sleep on the uh, underneath the bridge, that that uh, giving them some some autonomy in making those decisions is something that that some maybe not all some people rise to so so I'm all for for trying it and, and doing what works and in and, and what doesn't as to the larger question about uh, about shifting social realities and and the changes in work that, that stuff is is hugely complicated and hugely important and I, I I would I would offer just this one thought when you look at the rise of MAGA America right, of uh, working class people who identify uh, with, with Trump and others and others like him in a feeling that that the elites have have, have kind of taken over and not given them half a chance and that their their opportunities are declining and their kids are going to be worse off than they are and that their job skills are no longer relevant. Those folks aren't wrong. I mean, our technology has changed our lives. It has made some people losers. And we got to deal with that. And it's it's not easy. And if, 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 if a computer is driving the truck, there was a guy who used to be in the cab who had a job and we got to figure out what to do with him. And it's uh, it's definitely something that we're going to have to devote a lot of resources to. Yeah, especially in the, uh, you know, the, the era of A.I. And we've already talked about this a couple of times on the debate that. It used to be what, you know, you plowed the field the way your grandfather plowed the field and then technology came along and you plowed the field, but you plowed it with better tools than your grandfather plowed it. And uh, now pretty soon, you know, the robot plows the field. <laughs> and What do the humans yeah, do? Real. Right. That's and real, and, and it's real. and, and it, the changing in technological capabilities is so fast that I mean, goodness two you know, a month ago, I thought my job was really safe as a talk show host. Now I'm thinking about the uh, the voice imitation. The there are actually companies that are starting to market things like this. I mean, it's it's crazy how fast the technology is making obsolete almost everything that humans thought only humans could do. Right, and when that becomes the reality, what do we do for significance? What do we do for like Chris was saying, the importance of people to have work that gives their lives meaning, you know, the old Protestant work ethic is not wrong that people are better. People are better. Citizens are productive and engaged when they have an activity they can do, do well, take pride in and get paid for and, you know, spend that money on their, their housing and their food. I mean, that's how do you preserve that? And without going to the, well, we're just going to thwart technology, <laughs> you know, that, that can't be the answer. Cause historically that's never been the answer. So, um, Chris, one of the one of the things when I was looking at the arguments over this is my, my first thought was, frankly, I'm kind of with Ellis. It's twenty five million dollars for a two year experiment. Try it. I mean, it's not my state. I don't have to pay. 
I'm curious what it produces. <laughs> you know, I, I certainly don't want to advocate for it nationwide or even statewide in Oregon, but at a distance, you know, all the way across the country, I'm kind of curious what they find out in two years. I'd be I, again. I'd be curious what they could find out in two years that they didn't find out in the last two years when the federal and state governments essentially ran that exact program. Uh, I didn't see an improvement in the labor force and, and participation. I didn't see a decline in deaths of despair, of uh, drug overdoses, and suicide and alcoholism. Can, do you mind? In, can I pause you for a second? What, what about the? And I'm curious what you think about the argument that it reduced childhood poverty to have like the child tax credit come out, you know, on a monthly basis instead of as oh, a year end bonus. On the monthly oh, basis when people were getting paid? Yeah, I think the U.S. government should incentivize uh, families. I think it is, should incentivize having children. It's in the interests of the community. It's in the interests of the people to have that. Um, but there are some people, I think, that we ha- there are some controls that we can do to try and figure out and try to head off some of this disaster. I mean, Bernie Sanders and Ross Perot, I think, were both correct on things like the World Trade Organization. They were winners over the last 20, 30 years uh, for the deindustrialization in the, of the United States, and you find a lot of those folks in finance. The people decided it was it was it was more worth their 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 money to use foreign, cheap, sometimes slave and sweat labor to manufacture goods in Americans, and then sell it back to us on food stamps and welfare in communities that have been gutted by it. I think that's a serious problem and something that should be fixed. Uh, President Obama famously said you could need, you need a magic wand to reindustrialize the United States, and there are a lot of barriers, but some of those are ones that we our regulators and our bureaucrats and our politicians have set up, and some of them can be torn down and, and incentivized. And the same goes for Silicon Valley, where a lot of folks are very eager to try and come up with new technologies that might replace the working man. And it's worth the government that represents the working man to say, hold on a second, and to push back on that and say, we're not, we're actually not going to be okay with that sort of thing in this country. It, it goes against, I know, like libertarian ethos that's kind of run the right for so long, but you have to look at uh, or, and it goes against the free trade ethos that's run so much of the right for so long. But you do have to look at the impact that this has had. And after a while, yeah, some people have gotten richer, but the center of the country has been completely hollowed out. It's okay. If Oregon wants to do this experiment, then go ahead. I, I think we already kind of know the answer. But on a higher level, trying to protect our citizens so that they can actually find some meaning in their lives, that they can buy products that are made here with money that they earned is going to lead to a much more happy and wholesome community and country. Yeah, Ellis, uh, I mean, there's a fairly compelling argument to be made that the whatever you thought the rich-poor gap wealth-wise or income-wise was under you know capitalism for the first several hundred years, uh, it's nothing compared to the kind of gaps that are going to manifest in the AI world uh, based on you know widespread capability of displacing the need for human labor. And as Chris says, at some point, you got to look at the results on the ground. I know you're very much a pragmatist and you know, if you're just pushing people out of the workplace and they don't have subsistence, that's going to be a problem for us as a country. Yeah, that's, that's true. And those, uh, those disparities have, have indeed gone, uh, gone much greater. Uh, First of all, Andrew, nobody's going to take your job. Don't worry. I mean, radio may go out of business, (laughs) but, um, but there's not going to be. They've always been saying that for a hundred years. They've been saying that. There's not going to be some machine that's going to treat your callers as rudely as you do. I don't. I don't. See it. <laughs> well played, um, sir. Well played. As for I guess let me let, let me use my moment here to be uh, 
you're more cheerful than 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 the tone that we're easing. We started with the death penalty, and now it's on. It's full circle, right? The world is the world is not all going to hell tomorrow. Let me just let me just lay that on the table. I mean, we have extremely low unemployment right now. We have uh, we we, we've been pissing on the tech industry, but let me tell you, they've created an amazing economic engine. It's really the what's come out of that part of the west coast is uh, is truly fueling the economy of the world it's it's, it's one american import that uh, other than than entertainment that the people all over the world are are desperate for thank god for the wealth it's produced the uh, the trade and i know you know there's there are winners and losers in any trade relationship but uh I don't believe that we would have been better off if we just kept building higher walls in this society. It is it is true that intellectual pursuits, education, cultural sophistication, multiculturalism, um, some of the things that my conservative friends like to ridicule as being elitist and oh, hoity and uh, woke um, truly are the future. I mean, the future is not going to be plowing a field with a, with a, with a plow on your back or, or driving an 18-wheeler either. And so let's figure out, we can't stop it, let's figure out how we're going to make people ready for it and provide the, the, the training and education and opportunity that's going to bring all Americans along. But no, I'm not, uh, I, I'm not buying into this. We're a cesspool now getting deeper. No, you know, tech, you're talking about how tech has created so much flourishing. And then in some ways, it certainly has. Not unlike the Industrial Revolution created a lot of flourishing uh, about 100 years ago. And around 100 years ago was when we came to our senses of society and said, well, this is all good, but maybe we shouldn't be feeding children into these machines. Maybe we shouldn't be letting little kids get their hands ground up. Maybe we should crack down on how it's actually impacting our society, the yeah. pollution it's having. And I think we're, I'm hoping that around this 100th year anniversary of that, we're going to have the same kind of idea with tech. We're going to look at the mental illness, especially amongst young girls, but also amongst young boys. Look at the, the suicide rates and the effects that social media seems to be having on, on, uh, on our political discourse between adults, but on the self-esteem, particularly of children, and say, well, this has been good, and there's a lot of flourishing that will continue to come from it. But we as a society also need to look at the impact it's having on our children, on our adults, on our discourse, and and push back and find where that fits most comfortably with still keeping us humans and not simply cogs in the industrial machine or the, the new internet of things. Ellis, I definitely want to say I appreciate your confidence in my ability to be rude to my callers. That's very encouraging. <laughs> uh, it's, it's good to know you think so highly of me. You, know, uh, you got it, man. You got it, what it takes. It was interesting when I was doing some research on this. Um, you know, my general disposition is a no. Okay, on the universal guaranteed basic income, but there were some slices of it that not sort of against nothing. But against other programs, you know, the bureaucratic implementation of something like SNAP and telling you, you know, which foods you can buy, like you talked about at the beginning and which foods you can't. The, the difficulty of enforcing these things is so hard that maybe just a check is simpler. Also, I was I, I had not considered, but somebody who might want to start a business, but is afraid to leave their low paying job in order to start that business. A guaranteed basic income might give them just enough safety net that they're willing to take a try. 
Uh, somebody who's in, a, you know, a domestic violence situation might need, you know, just enough basic income that uh, they feel safe to leave or students who maybe have to work and work in order to pay for their community college if they could just, you know, maybe cut their hours in half or something like that because they had a basic income coming in and then they could go to school and get trained to be more productive. So those were advantages of the uh, guaranteed basic income that I hadn't thought about personally. And I, I found those a little bit interesting. Uh, final thoughts before we go, Ellis, anything? No, I just I'm I'm trying to be optimistic, you know. Uh, I I guess if all these places, Chris, are as bad as some folks think, uh, condos in New York and Washington will be a whole lot cheaper than they are, and uh, there's still an awful lot of people want to live in San Francisco and New York and Washington D.C. and these uh, these places that so many of my friends spend so much time attacking. But uh, I think that I, I don't think that's happening yet. Well, they are moving we'll in wild numbers south and east, I will tell you. But uh, when, you know. when you fire <laughs> 11,000 people this week from Facebook, then yeah. some of those people are going to have to sell their homes. And then when they sell their homes for less value than they were worth two years ago, their neighbors values are going to go down. And San Francisco, that was a that's a beautiful city. It's such an historic Wonderful. city. Yeah. But such a tragedy. I I wouldn't be shocked if we saw that decline in San Francisco. I would be shocked, happily surprised, if we saw a decline in real estate value in D.C., where I'm a homeowner, because that would signal that there was some kind of restraining of all the people making money off of government. But I doubt that. And and two, the SNAP stuff, I will say one thing. We need to get the sugar lobby under control. The amount of times, uh, I mean, supposedly you're really restricted on what you can buy. Uh, when you're on food stamps, you're on welfare. But the we, I don't see a lot of starvation in the very poor neighborhoods I live next to. I see a lot of very unhealthy, malnourished people, a lot of extreme obesity, a lot of supercars that are filled with sugary stuff. And that sugar lobby in getting in there is a serious problem to to helping folks get get their lives together. Which again is kind of the issue of, you know, are the regulations really effective or are they just the regulations? Ellis Hennigan and Christopher Bedford. Gentlemen, thanks so much for joining me today for a really good conversation here on The Debate. I'm Andrew Tallman. We'll see you next time. Being a staple in American media for over 90 years, Newsweek now brings you an exceptional lineup of podcasts. The debate. They'll recognize how these policies aren't working. They'll feel the pain and they'll change their behavior. The Josh Hammer Show. Restore the principles and the political paradigms of the American founding. The Crystal Knight Show. Just because officers are black doesn't mean that the policing system still isn't inherently racist. Fast women. Chevy's actually doing really well and Honda's really not. Wow. It's like the opposite of most people's perception of them. It is. The parting shot. Every year when the new nominations are announced, I get this excited, nostalgic feeling, and it brings out that little kid in me who just loved movies. The Royal Report. Harry and Meghan's head of comms has announced they now move forward to their kind of future outside the royal family. Newsweek Podcasts. New episodes drop weekly. Download or listen now at Newsweek.com or wherever you get your podcasts.